Good to see all of you here with us this morning for what feels like the first fallish day of the year after a week of 80 degrees. I'm glad that you're here with us this morning. Several things we're going to be doing together this morning, but let's open with a word of prayer and our choir will sing for us and we'll join them in some congregationals in just a moment. Lord, we are thankful that we can call ourselves your children, that we can call ourselves your people. And uh, it's for that reason this morning that we gather together uh, before you in your presence. You are always with each of us individually, Um, but you have promised us that when we uh, gather together that you you do things in our midst and that you're glorified by uh, our gathering together. And so this morning we ask that you would uh, glorify yourself through the words of song and the spirit of praise in our hearts um, with the praying and uh, the petitions of our own hearts and lives as we gather together and bear one another's burdens to you and then um, by submitting and coming under your word uh, we ask that you would be glorified by each of those things this morning and we praise you for who you are and how you have shown yourself to us and so we ask that this morning you'd settle our hearts and minds. There are many uh, troubles and um, issues and problems of life that have uh, entered into our lives even this week and these last months. We pray that uh, you'd help us to set those aside for a moment or, or just to carry them to you. And then other things, good things, uh, blessings in our lives this week uh, that we're thankful for, uh, but help them not to be a distraction, but to point our eyes towards you even now. And uh, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. All right. As you're seated there this morning, you may notice things sound just a little different. So we're going to ask for your patience on a couple things. And I'm going to throw an audible here in a moment. I'm going to give you a chance to adjust uh, we had a storm Friday, and uh, Brother Young texted me Friday afternoon and said uh, we were at a teacher's, we are at an educator's conference on Friday, and so Friday afternoon he texted and said there's no apparent damage to the buildings, and um, apparent being the key word there, and it seems that in that storm we lost our speaker cable that goes to this speaker on this side, and we didn't realize that until just a few minutes before the service today. So if you're on this side and you're having trouble hearing, in just a minute, we're going to give you the chance to adjust and switch this morning. It won't even bother me if the whole auditorium is really weighted down on this side, uh, but I'm going to give you a chance to switch. If you're struggling, if you can hear me fine, that's fine. I will talk as loud as I can uh, for the most part while I speak in a moment, but if you're struggling to hear, I'm going to give you a chance uh, to adjust that in a moment, and in fact... Philip, if you just get something ready to play in a few minutes, we'll let people shake hands and talk to each other and um, nonchalantly move away from where you are over here if you'd like to be over here, and we'll try to get that uh, cord replaced and fixed as soon as we can. Uh, didn't have a spare one to throw on there. Uh, also this morning, there's a few different things. If you would, take a look at your bulletin uh, today and um, some upcoming events and uh, some different things that we'd like to focus on, if you would. First, on the inside there, you see Ladies Fellowship coming up this week. Um, that is Tuesday night at 6.30. Uh, 
And if you are uh, interested, in, or if you plan on attending, there's a sign-up sheet at the Welcome Center. It helps us know kind of how many to prepare for. Or if you're able to help with setup or bring and prepare um, some small dishes for food, that information's at the Welcome Center as well. And then right after uh, the morning service this morning, for anybody that can help or wants to help set up or wants to help with food, uh, any ladies, there'll be a brief meeting back in the chapel for just a moment right after this morning's service. And you see the week of Thanksgiving, uh, just a week from Tuesday, amazingly. Uh, you see that that week we move our midweek service to Tuesday evening. Notice the time, it's a little different to try to help adjust and give us a little bit of extra time at 6.30 that night. And say, well, that is really close to my work, just come straight from work. It won't bother us at all. And so just come that evening and uh, hope that everyone will plan, and come, plan to come and be a part of that. Uh, Thanksgiving, a pie and praise service that evening. We'll gather and share some things that God's been doing in our lives, some scripture reading and songs, and then uh, a time of uh, fellowship afterward. And we're asking each uh, family to bring a dessert that has enough for their family and a little bit uh, to share as well. You see our missionaries at the bottom to pray for this week. And if you would, uh, take note of those, of course, as we always do. But one in particular, and you see Edgar and uh, Roseanne Fagali in our their their ministry to the Middle East, several countries in the Middle East, and uh, we don't always put a whole lot of detail about that particular ministry, just because of the nature of it and some of the countries that they're influencing and that they're in. Uh, but if you're here Wednesday night, you heard mentioned, and you see the name there at the very bottom left corner of your bulletin, the Stephen Troell family. Uh, Stephen Troell, he was not a missionary that we supported directly financially. Actually, he was planning on stopping coming to our church, um, stopping by sometime next year when they were back um, in the States, uh, and, and we had hoped to support them. Uh, Stephen and his family were ministering in the country of Iraq, and uh, he was there as an English teacher um, in an English institute, but was also training and discipling men from a number of countries around Iraq uh, that were going to be sent back to plant churches in areas of the world that most of us cannot go. And um, the people there loved Stephen. Um, and uh, this week, Stephen was was killed in an assassination, basically. And um, so we're praying for his family. He was not necessarily killed because of being a Christian, but um, there's just there's a lot of there's a lot of weight to it. A lot of political things back and forth with the new government there, and a number of things. And it just seems that he was. Uh, caught there as being uh, the American that was there at that time. And so, if you would, pray, pray for Stephen's family and pray for this particular ministry, Edgar and Roseanne Fagali. Uh, they're in the middle of um, starting a Christian school in the middle of Baghdad, Iraq, with government approval, um, which is pretty amazing feat that the Lord is working in their midst. Uh, they have the plans already approved by the government, to build that Christian school that's there. Um, they had to actually buy a, big, a little bit bigger piece of property. The government wanted them to buy, but they're in the midst of purchasing that property. And uh, they were actually going to ask Stephen to be uh, the administrator or the head of that school as well with the other things that he was doing. And so, uh, of course, uh, this kind of uh, adds a lot of different layers to that. So if you would pray for this particular ministry, but also pray for this family, the Troel family. Um, these next few uh, weeks and days. Several have asked about how we can help them, and we're going to let you know exactly how we can do that. It might be part of our uh, Christmas offering 
to help this family with their uh, sudden loss of Stephen there as well. If you would, take a, note, take, uh, a look at the middle of your bulletin there and uh, a note to our veterans. Uh, veterans Day didn't fall on a Sunday this year or a Wednesday, uh, but it was this week, and we always like to do something to celebrate the veterans of our church and our community. And uh, so uh, we'll read that in a moment, have a, a small video to show. But if I could have a couple men uh, that had uh, volunteered to help, if you would, to come. And then if you served in uh, a military capacity in any way, whether any of the branches of service, uh, men or ladies, if you would stand for just a moment, if you're comfortable doing that, and we would like to honor you. We just have a small gift to give you, and I know uh, that there is so much more that we would like to do for you. But each year, uh, we like to celebrate our veterans. And so if uh, you are part of that, if you would stand, and I know that even some of the men that are helping hand out some of the gifts are part of that as well. Um, and if you would stand, we'll bring those around to you in just a moment. Just a small token of our appreciation. Once you have that gift, you can remain standing just for just a moment, and uh, we'd like to recognize you. We'll do it kind of reverse, instead of having you stand when I call. I'm going to call your branch of military in just a moment, and if I call your branch, we like you can have a seat when I call it. We just like to see where different people uh, served, and it's in no particular order. I know that there is some discussion about uh, branches of military, order of service, and a number of things. In no particular order or preference, I will call out your branch of military. If you would, you can just have a seat and we'll recognize that. Anyone that served in the Air Force, if you would, have a seat there. And you can raise your hand as you see. Good job very, very much. Thank you for your service. Any Marines? And then say, hooyah along the way. And uh, Any Marines? Anyone in the Navy as well? And you can have a seat. And then it looks like the majority this morning is the Army, is that right? The Army, and then if you're in the Army or Coast Guard, either one, you can have a seat as well. And we want to just, again, express our appreciation and thanks. I'll read this for you, and then we'll have uh, a short video that expresses a prayer on our behalf this morning. And it says, this week our country celebrated Veterans Day, and as a church, we are thankful for our veterans that have served in so many different ways Throughout decades, literally, if you look around the room, decades of service uh, that we recognize. It says, we're proud that you're a part of our church, and we're grateful for how our God has used you to provide security and freedom for our families and for us as individuals and as a country. And thank you. Of course, we know we'll never be enough, uh, but we hope that you know that we love you as a church and that um, we hope to serve you as a church in this way as well. Um, if you would, just give a round of applause for our veterans this morning. And we're going to play a short video, a couple minute video, that again just expresses a prayer on our behalf as a church that we pray over you this morning. We can go ahead and play that. that have even 
passed on and are now in your presence. And uh, we are amazed and thankful um, that someone would be willing to sacrifice their life, their time, um, their, their, even their freedom in a way um, on our behalf, willing to lay down their lives for us. And uh, we praise you for it. Help us not to lose sight of that, uh, but to be grateful. Uh, may it serve as a reminder of you as our Savior, uh, a perfect sacrifice for us. And uh, may each of these uh, that have served know our gratefulness to them. And we praise you for them. And uh, we glorify you for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, stand, if you would, and um, where you are, and we're going to sing one final congregational song. And uh, before we sing, I'm going to ask Philip, you can play what, that song, whatever song you'd like. Before we sing, if you're struggling to hear me this morning, and there is no judgment on my behalf, I couldn't hear myself when I stood over there a few minutes ago, you are welcome to move about the room as you can, but your hearing won't get any better on this side this morning, I can promise you that. And so as he plays, if you would, let's take just a couple minutes, and if you're not going to move, that's fine, uh, but move around and, and shake a few hands this morning, greet one another, and uh, if you'd like to move around, you can do that at this time. take your Bible this morning and turn to the book of Matthew today. Again, Matthew chapter 12. And um, we're going to read the passage as we begin this morning. Anytime you get out of your normal rhythm, you got to make sure you pay close attention. And typically we uh, read the passage before the final song so that we can think about it, meditate on it. We didn't do that this morning. So before I Get shot out of a cannon here. Let's look at Matthew chapter 12, if you would. And we're going to pick up in verse number 14 together. Matthew chapter 12, verse number 14. If you would, follow along with me. If you don't have a Bible with you uh, or a device there, you can read it on. Make sure you use one from the chair in front of you, a little brown Bible that's there. And uh, follow along with us this morning as we read from, from God's Word. This is God's message to us about His Son. And uh, a, a double of that this morning. Uh, the New Testament is going to point to the Old Testament, which God told us out, His Son. Matthew 12, verse 14, says, And then the Pharisees went out and held a council against Him, how they might destroy Him. But when Jesus knew it, He withdrew Himself from thence, and great multitudes followed Him, and He healed them all, and charged them that they should not make Him known that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah, or Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax Shall he not quench till he send for judgment unto victory? And in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Lord, as we have read your word, we commend it to you and we ask you to teach it to us. 
use it to work in us uh, where we have fallen very short of you. Convict us of our sin and move in us um, to see the gentleness of our Savior. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you look there at Matthew 12 this morning, uh, a brief and short passage. Uh, but to be honest, we're, we're going to have to roll at a pretty steady pace to work our way through this this morning because there's a lot to this and there's a lot there. You have in your bulletin a few notes and some space that you can write in. You'll notice that there's some more space after some notes than others because that's where we're going to kind of slow down and focus a little bit this morning. And then on the back of your bulletin, you see the scripture reading section, and that is the Old Testament passage that is being quoted in Matthew chapter 12. It's Isaiah 42, verse 1 through 5, and I hope that you'll look at that. We'll read a portion of it in just a moment and uh, during the sermon, but I hope that you'll meditate on it this week. But I want you to look at this particular passage, Matthew chapter 12, 14 to 21. And when you look at the passage, it's a key moment in the book of Matthew. Things are about to totally change and pivot. For nine chapters in Matthew, Matthew presented the majesty of Jesus. He's amazing. He's wonderful. He is the only king. He is, and then he comes right out and says it, he is God. And then he displays that he is God. And in chapter 10, Jesus then calls his disciples, he calls specifically the few apostles, but also to his disciples to follow and serve him. And then in Matthew 11 and 12 that we've been studying, we're starting to see the response of some of the people that had seen and heard Jesus. And the response is not what you would expect. Jesus has been laid out very clearly for us. He is the King, the Messiah, the one true God, the Son, the Christ, the Savior, the coming chosen one of the world. And then we said that Matthew shows us, what does he show us their responses are? He gives us, at the beginning of chapter 11, he gives us an illustration that some doubted. Then he gives us the example that some criticized. Some were indifferent. And then he shows us at the end of Matthew 11 that some just flat out rejected Jesus, even to the place that their rejection turned into blaspheming him. They said, not only is he not from God, he is actually from the devil. And so you have Jesus presented in this marvelous way, and you think, oh, this is so great. Everyone's going to believe thousands and these multitudes. He's feeding thousands of people. He's doing good works. He's healing them. He's making himself known. He's teaching. He's working on behalf of the common people, the poor people, the sick people. He's doing mighty works. People, surely, someone's going to turn to him, right? And some did. But you'll see that Jesus, not only did he rebuke the religious leaders and the Pharisees saying, you're so blinded by your own human rules of religion that you can't see the Savior, he also rebuked, remember those three cities that he rebuked, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and the cities of Galilee, and he says, you have seen mighty miracles in your midst, and you still haven't repented. And so what he says is, he told the Pharisees, look, you're religion in your mind, your man-made rules and your legalism are keeping you from following me. You need to repent and believe. Then he looks at the people that he had ministered to and done these great miracles in front of, and they had listened to him teach. They'd follow him with intrigue. And he says, look, it's great that you're followed and you're around me, but you need to repent and believe. So your religion or your spiritual experience are not what saves you, he says. 
Only faith by grace through repentance alone will save you. And so Jesus' message is the same to both of them. And what have we already seen from both of them in Matthew 11 and 12? They just don't get it. They don't see it. There's indifference. There's straight rejection. There is doubt. And we see that in chapter number 12. Look at verse 14 again, and you'll see the first point. What we're going to see this morning is God is going to show us, Matthew is going to show us through God's words who Jesus really is. Now notice, if you have a red letter Bible that kind of shows you where Jesus was speaking, you'll notice that in verses 14 through 21, none of your letters are read. This is not Jesus speaking. This is Matthew writing and relating to us what happened, but he's quoting an Old Testament passage. Now, it's interesting to me, and I think we'll get to it at the end, as to why I think Matthew quotes this particular passage. But Matthew is the only of the four gospel writers, Matthew's the only one that makes this correlation, that quotes this passage. doesn't mean the others didn't see it, but I think it's significant to Matthew in particular for a reason. And so what happens is Jesus comes and he contradicts the Pharisees for their Sabbath. That's what we talked about last week, all their Sabbath rules, literally chapter upon chapter in the Talmud, not of rules and laws that God gave for the Sabbath, but rules and laws that men made up about the Sabbath. And Jesus says, I don't care about any of those because you made them up. They're not from God. And so he sort of ignores them all. I remember they come to him and they, they, they're fussing about him for eating an ear of corn or, or some grain and his disciples eating on the Sabbath. Then they're traveling and they're walking and they're fussing at him about that. Then they, he goes into their synagogue and he begins to teach. And as he's there, they use this man with a paralyzed, with the, the Bible calls it a withered hand, and they bring him to Jesus. You know what's interesting? The Pharisees probably had not even ever paid attention to that man. Never cared about him. And then all of a sudden, then they use him to thrust him in front of Jesus to tempt him and say, should you be able to heal this man on the Sabbath? And Jesus says, you're so focused on your rules and your laws about the Sabbath that you're missing the point that God's command is to do good. That the Sabbath is for man, not the other way around. Man's not made for religion in the Sabbath. That those things are made for mankind. They're gifts from God. And so Jesus calls the man forward, and he heals the man's hand. And at that point, the Pharisees, they, they have snapped at this point. Notice what it says in verse 14. They don't hold a discussion to see what they should do. The word there where it says destroy him, that, that does not mean like political destruction and ruin his career. That means they want to kill him. It means they want to murder him. And they don't even discuss, should we do this or not? Notice verse 14, what it says. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. The, the, the talk was not, should we? The talk is, how do we kill him? And so how did they get to this point? And then notice that in verses 15 through 21, Matthew presents us with this beautiful picture in which he quotes the Old Testament. He quotes Isaiah 42 and says, don't you remember? This is exactly what God said his son, the Messiah, would be like. The Pharisees missed it. And even, though, and even those in Galilee that followed him, that he fed and that he worked miracles, they missed it too. They were amazed by the miracles. But they wanted more than that. They wanted someone to take over Rome and literally, summarizing, take over Rome and give us free food. Like that's, that's literally what they wanted Jesus to do. And because he didn't do that, they would never fully accept him. They rejected him. And Matthew is going to insert a reminder right here in verses 15 through 21 he says, look, Pharisees, 
you're rejecting him because you haven't listened to what God said the Savior is going to be like. And he says, look, people that are following his miracles, you people of Galilee that have had this great experience and gotten to see all the wonders of Jesus, you're rejecting him because you're not listening to what God said his son would be like. And he goes back and he quotes Isaiah 42 because God has told us in a very contrary way to what the Pharisees, the religious people, and even the world. And isn't that the truth and the case today? That the world, those that know of Jesus, are captivated by him in some way and are captivated by what the Bible says about him, but they see it in their own view. And you and I, some of us, have been in that same position too, where we see Jesus through the lens of what everyone else says. We even see Jesus through the lens of what I say he has to be. Well, if he's going to be the Savior of the world, that means this is going to be true of him. But what actually is presented to us here, this is what God says is going to be true of his Son, of the Messiah, of the Savior of the world. And then he presents us with these characteristics, and we'll look at them twofold this morning. We'll look at them in a way in which we should gratefully glorify these things and carefully imitate them. I want you, if you want to jot some things down, you can even write that above this list of seven things, that these are things we should gratefully glorify about Jesus, but also carefully imitate in our own lives. And you see that there in the first one, not an enjoyable one, but notice he was condemned by false teachers. Here, Jesus, in a moment, the key of the passage is in verse 18. Notice it says, he's quoting Isaiah 42, in which God, speaking to Isaiah, says, Behold my servant. Look at him. And then he gives this description. Look at Jesus. And then he gives all these things. Just the same way you would describe your own child in a, in a, in a way in which you're proud of them, you're excited about it. Look at them and then you list all the descriptions of them or something that you've accomplished or something that you've done in life. Look at this and look at all the, and then you describe it. God says, look at my son. Look at the Messiah. Look at the coming chosen one. This is what he's going to be like. And so he says, look at him. He is my servant. We'll talk about that in a moment. But it's interesting that the true servant is then condemned by false servants. The Pharisees were not real servants. They wanted to be viewed as the servants of God. But actually what they wanted was glory and authority. And when Jesus challenged that, they tried to kill him. Savior, Son of God, God of the universe, God of the world comes and he challenges their authority. Imagine that. God challenges human authority, and their response is, we want to kill him. Does that sound like a modern-day cultural crisis to you? In which God gives us his word, which is truth, and says, this is the ultimate authority for your lives and for the world. And then we, we don't like it, and we reject it. And though we don't hold up our fists and say we're going to kill God, we kill him in our minds as a culture and society. We kill him in our minds and we numb ourselves to him and we ignore him and we live as though he is irrelevant and dead because he's challenged our authority. And as foolish as it looked for the Pharisees to treat Jesus this way, it looks that foolish for humankind to treat God that way. And you see there that they condemn him. But then notice what Jesus displays. Verse 15. <clears throat> But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from there, from thence, and great multitudes followed them. And notice this, and he healed them all. 
Isn't that a wonderful truth? That He cares for these people? That He is given to them? I want you to notice, if you would, that He heals them all. All of them. That means that Jesus was willing even to heal people that didn't believe in Him. All of these people had gathered in the multitude. They didn't all follow Christ. Some of them, and I'm convinced because of the size of the multitude, and eventually who was in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' death because of the Passover, I'm convinced that Jesus healed people that took part in his death. Great multitudes came to Jerusalem for the Passover from all over Israel. And he had healed people from all over Israel. And you can't convince me that there wasn't someone in the crowd yelling, crucify him, that had also experienced the healing touch and power of God. Let that sink in for a moment. We think sometimes that if we've had a, pra- a past or prior great experience with God, that it carries us through to somewhere or another. No, we can walk away from our relationship with God, or we can walk away from our relationship with Christ and be just as cold toward Him as these people were because of the sin of our own hearts. And so Jesus cares for people, but notice He cares for them all. Though He was condemned and Satan dominates the world in so many ways, sets up this false system against truth, and you have the Pharisees displaying this, and he withdraws, but notice he doesn't withdraw and hide. He he leaves the conflict with the Pharisees because he realizes, I'm not going anywhere with this. They're not going to get this. But he doesn't withdraw and hide defeated. He withdraws and cares for whoever comes into the path of his life. It would have been easy to feel discouragement or anger or rejection back toward them, but he doesn't. He cares for people. But notice, he heals them all. There was no presupposition. There was no contingency that was made like the the disciples lined everybody up and said, do you believe in this, this, and this? And how long have you followed? How long have you been in the crowd? And where do you live? None of those things. Jesus just heals them all. And in healing them, he shows his deep care and concern for people. But then notice in verses 15 and 16 that Jesus remains conformed or obedient to God's plan. And this is interesting to me. Notice he he removes himself from the Pharisees because it wasn't time for that kind of conflict. He had not been made known by all of to, to all of this area as the true Messiah. In fact, most people hadn't really gotten that that is who he was. And then in verse 16, notice, he heals them all and then charges that they should not make him known. Now, that's, that's a difficult circumstance, or that's a difficult thing to really kind of wrestle with, isn't it, if you, if you think about it. Why would, why would Jesus tell people that he'd healed not to talk about him, not to tell of it? Jesus conformed to God's plan, which was very different than the plan of man. The plan of men for the Messiah, the plan of Israel for the Messiah, was to lift him up, make him the king. Remember, Jesus feeds the 5,000 people. What do they want to do? He feeds 5,000 people from nothing, and their immediate response is, make him the king. That's what they want. A political, a governmental ruler that will fix their issues and their physical problems. But Jesus did not come to ascend to a throne, but to be hung on a cross first. He came uh, not to to shed Roman blood, but to have his own blood shed. 
His rule was not going to come at the hands of leading an angry mob, but by being killed by one. He was conformed to God's plan. Now, why would Jesus tell them not to tell? I don't have time to get deep into it this morning. There's a few thoughts. I think that the Lord knew the problem sometimes of secondhand stories. And he's saying, look, let others experience me for themselves personally, individually. Rather than it spreading abroad, oh, he did this, and he did this, and he did this, and he's making people be able to fly, and, you know, shooting fire out of his hands and eyes, and, you know, things get stretched, right? And Jesus says, I'm going to heal you, I'm going to heal you individually and personally. Think about when he heals the blind man, he says, don't tell anyone about this. Go to the priest and be made confirmed and declared clean. He's working in an individual, one-on-one way. I also think that he didn't want to just strictly become known as a miracle worker. He wanted people to hear his teachings. He was submissive to God's plan, even though there was a, quote-unquote, easier and more glorified way, he remained submissive to God's plan, as should we. And then notice, because of this, verse 17 and 18, he's commended by God himself. Behold, my servant, it says that it should be fulfilled, which Isaiah the prophet said, Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I'll put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. So he shows concern for those that had need, cared for people. He is committed and obedient, submissive to God's plan. But then in this, he is commended by, or he's lifted up by, the Father. I want you to notice, he says, Behold, my servant, whom... I have chosen my beloved in whom I am, my soul is well pleased. Think about that for a moment. God himself commends his son. Look, if you would, on the back of your bulletin. You don't even have to turn there in your Bible right now. Look at the back of your bulletin and read Isaiah. Notice the description. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. Notice God says, my soul delights and joys my son. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. Notice the quote here. His bruised reed he shall not break. The smoking flax he shall not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not faint, nor be discouraged, till he has set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. Thus saith the Lord God, He that created the heavens and stretched them out, He that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, he that giveth breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to, spirit to them that walk therein. I want you to think about this. Why is it such a big deal that this is that Jesus is commended by God for this purpose? Because this is God's plan. This isn't someone. Somebody just came up with this out of the blue. Somebody said, "God, it'd be neat if you did this." God's plan is His love, an expression of that love toward people. It's why he's so passionate about it. Like you have a project at work that you're assigned for one thing or another. You, you know, so usually you feel a little different about that project if it's someone else's idea compared to if it's your idea. If it's your idea, you want it to succeed because you're passionate about it. Something that you want to do in your home and in your family or, you know, you, uh, this is my idea. I'm so excited about this. And we see that in the Lord, the God, the Father, as he points to his son and says, this is what I've given you. His Spirit toward us. What do we see? We see God's Spirit toward us by how it is displayed through His Son, Jesus Christ. 
But then notice, as it goes on, that he's commended by the Father. He communicates truth to all men. He speaks truth as it is. He will, says he will show judgment to the Gentiles. It doesn't mean literally he's going to bring judgment on all the Gentiles. Notice, he uses the word show. He's going to reveal it. He's going to display it. Why? Because he doesn't just want the Jewish nation to be saved. He wants all men. His compassion is toward all people. And you can see that when it says that he healed them all in verse 15. You see it all through the passage. He healed them all. He's going to show and reveal judgment and salvation to the Gentiles. And then at the end, verse 21, in his name shall the Gentiles trust. He is showing his heart toward all people and that he has compassion toward all men. This is the description that God gives of his son. Think about in chapter 9, we won't turn back there for time's sake, but in chapter number 9, verse 36, it says that Jesus looked at the multitude and how did he see them? He says that they were, that they fainted as sheep that have no shepherd. That word faint there literally means to be stripped bare and have no support. And he looked at people that had been stripped bare by sin and by false religion and and by the rules that the Pharisees and others had made, by the Roman oppression over their physical lives and their citizenship. And he saw people that had nothing and he loved them. Think of the descriptions that God made in the New Testament for Jesus or that Jesus even made for himself. Think about the relationships that he describes. He described himself as a husband, a shepherd, a friend, and a brother. Now, I know that in our human way and cycle, we can ruin all of those things. There can be cruel shepherds and masters. There can be uh, brothers at odds. There can be abusive husbands. But in their natural state, the way that they are supposed to be, think about those relationships. Husband, shepherd, friend, brother. This Don't miss this this morning. That's how God thinks of you. The way a husband is to cherish for and care for his bride and his wife. The way a shepherd protects and and pushes away and guides to nourishment. The way a friend listens and hears and, and supports. The way that a brother will not detach himself for any reason. He's that loyal and that committed. That's how God thinks of you this morning. And don't be confused. You say, well, why would we emphasize that? We know that. Yeah, we know it. So did the Pharisees. The Pharisees had Isaiah 42. They probably had it memorized. But they missed it because God wasn't what they thought he should be. And sometimes we live our lives and we forget how God thinks about us. And for the last few minutes this morning, these points have kind of have rushed through to get to these last three. Because this is what I really want us to just focus on this morning. I want us to be rebuked by but also amazed by, humbled by, the way that God thinks about you. I mean, think about it this morning. This is what He has given us in His Son, this glorious picture, this Messiah, this coming one. And notice these last three things, that Jesus is committed to meekness. Notice in verse number 19, He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall man hear His voice in the streets. It doesn't mean He's not going to cry like He's not going to cry tears. And it doesn't mean he's not ever going to raise his voice as he speaks and preaches, but it says that's, that's not who he is. He doesn't rage. He doesn't strive. The word strive there means to contest or fight with. 
and then the word cry there means it's the same it's the same word this is how the greek people would use that word they would use it to refer to a darking a uh, uh, darking bog a uh, barking dog I'll say that three times fast a barking dog a crow calling a bird screeching or a drunk man hollering in the streets and it says jesus is not going to be like that rambling on and just yelling for attention trying to clamor for himself he won't do that. Why? Think about all of those things. All of those things, they're just shouting and screaming to gain attention or to get people to look or to draw attention to their own desires. But Jesus is busy with his eyes pointed toward the need of people. And so he's not yelling and barking in the street about his own life and his own stuff. He's about, his, he's about his father's mission, which was his care and his concern for the people. He was meek. God Almighty and powerful, yet reserved in his judgment and justice toward people because he's displaying mercy in meekness. At the end, we'll make application, but I want you to think about our own lives. What are we more like, a barking dog or a serving Savior? Now, you may think, I don't bark like a dog. Are our lives just clamoring for us? Or are we giving of ourselves then to others? Are we driven by the meekness of Christ to have then meekness ourselves? And then look at number six. This is the main thing I want to focus on this morning. That Jesus is committed to meekness, but then notice, comforts the weak. This, uh, it's, if this uh, passage was a, a, a wedding ring, a, a diamond engagement ring. I feel like this is the main, I don't know what you call that centerpiece, but this is the big one. <laughs> this is the one everybody judges by. You know, you give, you give your wife a wedding ring or a piece of jewelry or you get engaged and you put it on. You know, it could have like a thousand little diamonds on it and no one cares. Just the big one, that's the one that everyone focuses on. And it's not to belittle the other portions of this passage. I don't, I, don't, I don't mean to belittle the other portions of the passage. But in my opinion, verse number 20 here, this is just the beaming, huge stone of this passage set out for us. It's such distinct language, and yet we could blaze over it because we don't necessarily pay attention or understand it. Notice, a bruised reed shall he not break, a smoking flax shall he not quench. Till he send forth his judgment unto victory. Let's focus on those two phrases for just a couple minutes. A bruised reed, he's not going to break. Smoking flax, he's not going to quench. You say, that means nothing to me. <laughs> you know, like, so it's not in our culture. You know, it's not something that we think about that often. But I want to try to portray what it's saying. And remember, Matthew is the one that is saying this. It says that Jesus comforts and builds up people that are broken and bruised and hurting. And I want to ask you this morning as a Christian, what in your life has put some sort of, you know, a kink in your armor? You know, it's, it's, it's a knot that has messed you up somewhere along the way. There's a brokenness about your relationship with God. All right, now, watch right here. Here's what he's saying. I'm going to start with the first one, and then I'm going to sh- literally show you the second one. Or vice versa, I'm going to show you the first one. And so let me start with the second one. Notice it says, Smoking flax he shall not quench. And they had these, the only, best way I can describe it is they would, they would have these little lamps. And they didn't look like our oil lamps and they didn't look like our candles. They looked like 
a genie lamp from Aladdin. That's the best way I can describe it, okay? That's what it looked like. The little lamp you rub, poof, it comes out. But they didn't do that. They put oil in it. And then they would take a piece of flax, a piece of fabric made, it, well, it's not even fabric, it's really made from plant, and they would dip it through the end, the end, the genie comes out, they would put that into the end of it, it would soak up the oil, and then they would light it. And as long as there was oil, it would burn, and it would burn brightly. It would give light, and it would give attention to what was there. But eventually, that oil would burn off and drain away. And then you know what burns when the oil's not there? The flax itself actually burns. And if you did not add oil to the lamp, then eventually the oil would go down, that flax would start to burn out, but it doesn't have anything to really put off. It's like trying to burn a wet leaf. It's just smoke. It's, so it would start to smolder. And the typical way that that was handled when your oil lamp would go out, you know what most people would do in Jesus' day and culture? And it's not wrong. It's not sinful. It's just what made sense. They'd pull out the old flax piece. They'd put in a brand new one so they didn't have to mess with it. They'd pull out that smoking one. They'd snuff it out. They'd throw it to the side. Put in a new one, pour in new oil, poof, everything's new again. Why? What do we need to do? The thing that is wasted and useless is discarded. And we start with something new. And here's what the Bible is saying. Jesus doesn't do that. <laughs> he doesn't do that with people. Do you see it? That our lives spiritually sometimes are burning. We love God. We're passionate about Him. But sometimes the oil runs low, doesn't it? And sometimes it's not Christ burning through us. We feel like we're the ones burning at every end. And eventually there's no more flame, no more light, and no more heat. It's just smoldering smoke. It stinks to us and to everyone around it. And it says that Jesus, rather than come and pick that and throw it away and start new, it says that he will care for it and he'll trim it. He'll put new oil in it. He'll fan it until it lights new again. Jesus does that with your life this morning. Lost or Christian, doesn't matter. You feel like you're burning at each end and life is useless. It stinks. It's smoking. I can't do what I want to do. I'm not anything for God. I used to be more passionate about Him. Jesus is a merciful God this morning. And it says that he will not discard you, extinguish you. And I want you to notice the last one. And I'm going to, I don't always do this, I'm going to give you a little illustration. Rob, can you help me for a second? In this room right here on the chairs, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about when you walk in, the little bundle of stuff. And you bring that to me again this morning. Notice it says in verse number 20, a bruised reed shall he not break. I want you to picture and think about your own life this morning. I know that we're getting close, but I'm going to finish with this because this is, Probably going to make a mess. and um, So a reed is not anything special. These are reeds. These are from an area that I like to hunt. And uh, so I went and gathered these. A reed that they would have used is very, something very similar to this. Now notice, this is a small bundle of them. Where I hunt, there's, I don't know, like tens of thousands of these things. They're just, they're everywhere. They're all over the place. And they would use these for all sorts of different things in Jesus' day. They would use them to stir things. They would use them to weave baskets. They would cut pieces of them. They're hollow. They cut pieces of them and use them as straws. Novel idea. They would often, shepherds would often take them out, cut ends on them, put tiny little holes in them and blow through them to make little musical sounds just for amusement. They'd use them for all kinds of things. But here's the thing about them. 
they're not rare. They're not valuable. And they break very easily. And he says, a bruised reed he will not break. So, for instance, I'm going to go through my life. I'm going to pick this up and, uh, you know, whatever it is, I'm going to make this, I don't know, I'm going to make it a, to a basket. That's probably not a good illustration because I would be terrible at that. But you see how it, it bends a little bit, right? And I can use it. I can form it and fashion it. But if it's been stepped on by an animal or someone's pushed it over and it has this bruise in it where it's, it has no more substance, I can't use it for what I want to. I can't bend it anymore. It's snapped. It's broken. It's pointless. Well, what do I do? Most people in Jesus' day, here's what they do. They throw it away, and they just get a new one. And I'm going to use this one for an instrument today, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this, and I'm going to get it all the way I should. Oh, this one, ah, this one just shouldn't, it's broken too. I'm going I'm to grab one of these. I can't make an instrument. Maybe a straw. I'll use a straw, and I'll snap this off. But, oh, man, it's feathered on the end. Well, no, I'm just going to grab a. I'm going to grab another one. And um, I want to do something with it. You know what it says that Jesus does? Even something as fragile and invaluable as this, <laughs> Jesus will not break and discard it. But rather, he mends it and he cares for it. I want you to think this morning. If you get nothing else, we're going to close this morning. I want you to think about this. This is how God thinks about you. Because there are things in life, man, I want God to use me. I do. But my lack of faith and my fear have bruised me and I'm useless. No, God's not going to throw me away. He's going to mend me. I, I want to be used by God, but my bitterness and anger about my situation and circumstance have made me seem useless. I don't have a relationship with him. No, he's not going to throw me away. He's going to fix me. And he's going to care for me. And he's going to use me. My depression, my discouragement, my anxiety, my stress, my overwhelmed situation in life, my family, my contentious relationship with whoever it is in my life has made me useless to God. No, you see yourself that way. God has never seen you that way. And he will not break and discard you. He will mend and he will use you. And I want you to think this morning as you close that he will use anyone. Notice the last verse 21. In his hand, in his, excuse me, in his name shall the Gentiles trust. The word Gentiles there, it's the word, it's the word ethnos, like sounding like ethnic, meaning just different people groups, it, meaning anyone outside of Israel. Literally, and this drove the Pharisees mad that he said Gentiles. You know, Paul was preaching, I believe it's in Acts 20, I think it is, and that Paul's preaching, and he starts talking about, and he says he used the word Gentiles, talking about Gentiles being saved. You know what the Jewish mob did? It says that when they heard that word, they turned against him to kill him. It says that they took off their clothes and threw dirt in the air, and they just went nuts because, no, no. God cannot save that person, those people. But God's message is this is how he feels to all men, all women, all people in this world. And it's how God feels toward you this morning. Regardless background, regardless of failings, regardless of anything in your life, God is gentle with you. And he longs to have a relationship with you. Let's bow our heads for a moment this morning.
time sake this morning. We didn't have time to get into the application. Hopefully you'll look at it at the back. Christ thinks of you this way and he deals with you this way. And whatever it is that you think makes you broken before the Lord, your fear of people, your crippling fill-in-the-blank, whatever it is that has made you feel useless before the Lord, he will not throw you away. He will use you because he loves you. But we should be people like Jesus who care for others, who obey God's plan, who teach the truth and communicate that alone, who are committed to be meek people, and who comfort those who feel broken and weak. And so this morning, if God thinks of you this way, who are we to think of others any differently? Quote, I read, it's a book called The Bruised Read by Richard Sibbs, and I'll use this and pray. It says, Physicians, though they put their patients to much pain, will not destroy the nature of a human, but raise it up by degrees. Surgeons will lance and cut, but they will not dismember. A mother who has a sick but self-willed child will not cast it away. And shall there be more mercy in a stream than in a spring? Shall we think that there is more mercy in ourselves than there is in God who plants the affections of mercy in us to begin with? We think sometimes of God as unmerciful. And yet he is nothing but. Let's thank him for it. Gratefully glorify and carefully imitate our Savior this morning. Father, help us as we close. We love you and we cherish you. You are so different than us. And it is not you who needs to be like us. It is we who need to be like you. Give us strength for that this morning. Comfort us by who you are. Our sin has made us feel broken. But we're reminded this morning, you do not throw us away. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand if you would. Let's sing this to the Lord carefully and gratefully. And then we'll be dismissed. In the quiet of this moment, I confess to you, O Lord, that this frail, unworthy servant has rebelled against your word. You are holy beyond measure, without fault of any kind. I am dust, corrupt by nature, 